Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's topic, building a new research field. So suppose we think there should be more research on some topic. Maybe it's asteroid deflection or the efficacy of social distancing, or maybe it's building safe artificial intelligence, whatever. How do we get scientists to work more on that topic? Now, one approach is to just pay people to work on the topic. That's the capitalist way, after all. The trouble is, this kind of approach could be really expensive. To estimate just how expensive, Myers 2020 looks at the cost of inducing life scientists to apply for grants that they wouldn't normally apply for. His research context is the NIH, which is the U.S.'s biggest funder of biomedical research, or biomedical science anyway. Normally, scientists seek NIH funding by proposing their own research ideas. But sometimes the NIH wants researchers to work on some kind of specific project, and in those cases it uses a Request for Applications grant. Myers wants to see how big those grants need to be to induce people to change their research topics to fit the NIH's preferences. So Myers has data on all NIH Request for Application grant applications from the years 2002 to 2009, as well as the publication history of every applicant. Myers tries to measure how much of a stretch it is for a scientist to do research related to this Request for Applications, hereafter I'll just call those RFAs, by measuring the similarity of the text between the RFA description and the abstract of each scientist's most similar previously published article. And the similarity here means two texts are more similar if they have more of the same relatively uncommon words. So if we line up scientists from left to right, from least to most similar uh, to a given RFA, and then we see what's the probability that they apply for that grant, we can see that the probability they apply is a lot higher the more similar they are. So the people on the far right who are most similar are going to apply at hundreds or thousands of times more uh, higher probability than people who are very far away and very whose research is really dissimilar to what the RFAs ask for. And that's not really surprising. Now, Myers can also do that same kind of exercise with the size of the award. We can line up the grants from smallest to largest and see what's the probability that a given scientist applies for each grant. Again, no surprises, people are a lot more likely to apply for grants that are bigger. Now, the interesting thing Myers does is he combines all this information to estimate a trade-off. How much do you need to increase the size of the grant in order to get someone with less similarity to apply for it, at the same probability as somebody who has more similarity? In other words, how much does it cost to get someone to change their research focus? Now, this is a tricky problem for a couple reasons. First, you have to think about where do those RFAs come from in the first place? For example, if some new disease attracts a lot of attention from both NIH administrators and from scientists, well, maybe the scientists would have been eager to work on that topic anyway, and that would overstate the willingness of scientists to change their research for grant funding, since they might not be willing to change absent this new and interesting disease. Another important nuance is that bigger funds attract more applicants, and that lowers the probability that any individual applicant wins the award. And that's going to tend to understate the willingness of scientists to change their research for more funding. For instance, if the value of a grant increases tenfold, maybe I'd be really willing to change my uh, application. But if the tenfold increase in the grant increases the number of applicants fivefold, well, then the effective increase in what I think the application is going to be worth to me has only doubled because I get 10 times the money if I win, but I'm only going to win one fifth as much. Myers provides some evidence that that first concern about correlation between when we offer an RFA and when we're going to apply for it, he shows that that's probably not a big deal. And he has to explicitly model 
the second concern about how many people enter and how does that affect my interest in competing. Now, the upshot of all this work is that it's quite expensive to get researchers to change their research focus. In general, Myers estimates getting one more scientist to apply, i.e. getting that one whose research is typically more dissimilar than any of the current applicants, but more similar than those who didn't apply, that's going to typically require increasing the size of the grant by 40%, or nearly half a million dollars over the life of the grant. So given that price tag, maybe a better approach is to try and sell scientists on the importance of the topic that you think is understudied and try and, instead of trying to pay them to do it. So, because, you know, academic scientists do have a lot of discretion in what they choose to study. So maybe you can convince them to use that discretion on the topic that you think is really important. And we did look at this in a podcast, an article called Gender and What Gets Researched. It looked at some evidence that personal views on what's important do affect what scientists choose to research. For example, women are more likely to do female-centric research than men. And men who are exposed to being around more women, in the case of the paper, when their schools go co-ed, they're more likely to do gender-related research as well. But we also have a bit of evidence from other domains that scientists do, in fact, shift their priorities to work on things that they think are important. So perhaps the cleanest evidence comes from Hill et al. 2021, which looks at how scientists responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. In March 2020, it became clear to basically everybody in the world that more information on COVID-19 and related topics is going to be the most important thing in the world for scientists to work on at that moment. And the scientific community responded to that. By May 2020, and then throughout the rest of the year, about one in every 20 to 25 papers published was related to COVID-19. And I don't mean one in every 20 to 25 biomedical papers. I mean, one in 20 to 25 papers, like all papers. So this is a stunning shift by the standards of academia. For comparison, there's another paper by Pakalan and Bhattacharya, 2011, which looks at how biomedical research changed over the second half of the 20th century. Pakalan and Bhattacharya classify 16 million biomedical publications all the way back to 1950, and they look at the gradual changes in disease burden that arise due to the aging of the U.S. population and the growing obesity crisis. As diseases associated with being older or more obese became more prevalent in the United States, surely that's clear sign that those diseases are more important to do research on. So they want, they're interested in seeing, did the scientific establishment respond by doing more research related to those diseases? And I think the answer, if you look at their paper, is sort of. As diseases related to the aging population became more common, the number of articles related to those diseases does also go up. But the effect is kind of fragile. It disappears under some statistical models, and then it reappears in others. Meanwhile, there doesn't seem to be any real discernible link between the rise of obesity and research related to diseases more prevalent in a heavier population. Now, further emphasizing the extraordinary pivot into COVID-related research, most of this pivot actually preceded changes in grant funding. The NIH did shift to issuing grants related to COVID but it did so with a considerable lag, leaving most scientists to do their work without grant support, at least initially. Now, on the one hand, I think these studies do illustrate the common sense idea that if you can change scientists' beliefs about what research questions are important, well, then you can change the kind of research that also gets done. But on the other hand, the weak results in Pakalan and Bhattacharya are a bit concerning. Why isn't there a stronger response to changing research needs outside of things like global catastrophes? So I'd point to two challenges to swift responses in science. And these are also likely contributing reasons why Myers finds it so expensive to induce scientists to apply for grants that they wouldn't normally apply for. 
And both reasons stem from the fact that a scientific contribution isn't worth very much unless you can convince other scientists that what you've done is in fact a contribution. So the first challenge with convincing scientists to work on a new topic is that there actually needs to be other scientists around who care about that topic. This is related to a model presented in Akerlof in Michelet 2018, and which I discussed in a lot more detail in another podcast called How a Field Fixes Itself, the Applied Turn in Economics. Akerlof and Michelet present a model where scientists' work is evaluated by their peers, but their peers are also biased towards their own research paradigms. Their model shows that if favorable evaluations are necessary to stay in your career, and then, you know, by staying in your career, you're going to be able to transmit your new research paradigm to a new generation. Well, then in that case, new paradigms can only survive when the number of adherents passes a critical threshold. Intuitively, even if you would like to study some specific obesity-related disease because you think it's going to be really important, if you think that few other scientists agree with you, then you might choose not to study it since it's going to be such a hard slog getting recognition for your work. So essentially, we have a coordination problem. The second challenge is that even if there is a critical mass of scientists working on the topic, it might be hard for outsiders to make a significant contribution of their own. And we have a few pieces of evidence that this is, in fact, the case. Hill et al. 2021, this paper that looked at COVID-related research, they, also, they quantify research pivots by looking at the distribution of journals cited in a scientist's career, or specifically the last three years of their career, and then measuring the similarity of journals cited in a new article to the journals cited in those previous three years. For example, my own research has been in the field of economics of innovation. And if I write another paper in that vein, it's likely going to cite broadly the same mix of journals that I've long been citing, like research policy, management science, maybe some general economics journals. Hill and co-authors measure would then classify this new article that I've written as being sort of a minimum pivot, close to zero on their measure. I also have written, though, about remote work, and that was a bit of a pivot for me. The work cited a lot of journals and fields I don't normally end up citing, or hadn't normally cited up until that point anyway, like the Journal of Labor Economics, the Journal of Computer-Mediated Communication. But I also still cited a lot of general economics papers and even some of those economics of innovation journals. So Hill and co-authors measure there would probably classify that as an intermediate pivot, greater than zero, but a lot less than one. But if I were to completely leave economics and write something on the biology of COVID-19, well, I might end up not citing any journals I've ever cited before. And that would be measured in their paper as a maximum pivot, uh, which would be a pivot of one. And by this measure, most COVID-related research involved a much bigger pivot than average. So Hill and co-authors then look to see what's the probability that a given paper is in the top 5% of cited papers received in its field for that year. And they show that the greater the pivot the paper makes, the less likely a paper is to be highly cited. For example, a minimum pivot paper has maybe a 7 or 8% chance of being among the top 5% cited in its field, but a paper that is a massive pivot, totally unlike anything you've done before, has less than maybe a 2% chance of being one of the top five most cited papers in its field for that year. Another paper by Arts and Fleming from 2018 provides some additional evidence on the difficulty that outsiders face making major intellectual contributions, but their paper is going to be looking at inventors instead of academics. And they have a simple measure of stepping outside your research domain, which is just, do you have a patent that was given a technology classification that you've never been given before? As with Hill et al. 2021, they find that these patents that receive new technology classifications tend to receive fewer citations. 
But one thing I quite like about this paper is that it goes beyond citations and it also looks at some alternative measures of the value of a patent, such as whether the inventor or the assigner themselves chooses to pay renewal fees to keep that patent active. But by this measure too, patents from outsiders are less valuable. So science is pretty competitive, and if it's harder to do valuable work in a new field, well, then it may well be in any given scientist's best interest to just stay in their lane. But that can make it hard for the system overall to respond to changing research needs. But it's not impossible. While the above barriers make it harder for new scientists' scientific fields to emerge, clearly it does happen. So to close, let's look at two factors that can maybe make the change easier. First, if you can solve the coordination challenge of getting a critical mass of scholars to focus attention on a new topic, well, then you can create a new equilibrium where pivoting into that field can be in any given individual's self-interest. It becomes sort of self-perpetuating. And COVID-19 provides just such an example of a new equilibrium. It's too early at this point to learn much from the citations to COVID-19 research. They've only had like six months or a year to get cited. But as an early indicator, Hill and co-authors look at the journals where COVID-19 research got published. They assign each journal a score based on the historical probability that an article published there becomes a top 5% most cited publication for its field and for its year. This lets them break out and look at COVID-related research and non-COVID-related research. In both cases, they observe the same pivot penalty, where the larger you pivot, the more dissimilar the research is from your pre-existing research, the less likely it is to be highly cited. But because there's a new consensus that COVID-related research is so important, COVID-related research tended to publish in journals that tend to get highly cited papers. So like a pivot to COVID that's measured at around a 0.7 between 0 and 1, so pretty high, appears to have the same likelihood of becoming a highly cited paper as a non-COVID paper that executes sort of a minor pivot, which they would measure as like 0 0.3 out of between 0 and 1. So all else equal, it's better to make a smaller pivot to COVID-related research, but large pivots are not nearly as unattractive as they previously were because there's this sort of new consensus that this is actually a very important thing and there's a critical mass of people looking at it. So that's one way to solve this problem is if you can solve the coordination problem, well, then it becomes self-perpetuating. Second, if career incentives constrain scientists to sort of stay in their lane and avoid branching out into new topics, well, then maybe changing those incentives might also help. But evidence here, I think, is a lot more mixed. On the one hand, we have this well-known paper by Azule, Graf Sivan, and Mans, 2011, which compares the recipients of Howard Hughes Medical Institute support to a control sample of early career prize winners in the life sciences. A key difference between these groups is that if you're a winner of Howard Hughes Medical Institute support, let's call this group HHMI winners, you're relatively insulated from the typical academic grant system. These guys typically receive at least five years of support. It's not tied to any specific project. There's this relatively lax initial review period, and you're typically reviewed for at least another five years. And if you're not renewed, uh, you still get two years of funding to help keep the lab open while you look around for new funding. In contrast, sort of the typical grant is more like three years, and if there's not a high probability, you get renewed, and if you don't, the money's just gone. Azule and co-authors use the MESH lexicon, which is the standardized set of keywords assigned to biomedical papers by experts. They use that to show that HHMI investigators are more likely to explore new research topics than this control group. The MESH words assigned to their papers tend to be of a more recent vintage, and there tends to be less overlap between the MESH words assigned to their post-HHMI support papers and their pre-ones, 
when you compare that to some control group over a similar time frame. That suggests being somewhat freed from the need to secure grant support via normal channels does let scientists explore new fields. But on the other hand, we have this 2018 paper by Brogard, Engelberg, and Van Wessep, which looked at another set of career incentives that insulate scientists from the pressure to sort of conform. And that's tenure. Brogard, Engelberg, and Van Wessep look at 980 economists who at one point belonged to a top 50 economics or finance department between 1996 and 2014, and who were granted tenure by the year 2004. They tracked down these economists' complete publication records in order to assess how do they publish before they get tenure and in the 10 years after. Now, for our purposes, one of their most interesting results is about whether economists use the autonomy of tenure to branch out into new journals or publishing in new economic areas or whatever. Unfortunately, Brogard, Engelberg, and Van Wessep find no evidence that they do. Indeed, in some versions of their statistical tests, economists are slightly less likely to branch out after receiving tenure. And this is a long-run effect. It's not just the one or two years that they're sort of taking a breath after getting tenure. This goes on for 10 years. So that leaves us in a bit of a muddle. For elite scientists, HHMI-style support seems to have encouraged them to branch out and try new things. But for economists, the insulation of tenure didn't. Well, is that because tenure is different from HHMI support? Or maybe economists are different from biomedical scientists? Or maybe elite scientists are different from just everybody else? We don't know. Until then, though, I think we can say a few things with confidence. First, the direction of research does respond to money and perceptions of the intrinsic value of that research. But it doesn't appear to be super responsive. And that might be because of some incentives scientists face to stay focused. Fields might need a critical mass of sympathetic peers before it's individually rational to enter them. And even when a critical mass of peers does exist, it's challenging for outsiders to do top work in those fields, at least initially. So building a new field is probably pretty hard for those reasons. But if you can get the ball rolling, maybe it's also possible that it can continue going on its own momentum. More research is needed. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation inaccessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.